الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد أما في أجمعين. So last week we began with the tafsir of Surah Falaq and we finished I think the first verse of the tafsir of Surah Falaq as well. And one of the reasons why um, I think last week we only covered the tafsir of, of the first verse is because we gave a somewhat lengthy introduction into the scholar's understanding of tafsir and the differences of opinion that the scholars of tafsir voice. And this is something which we're going to be like kind of doing every so often where we come across something new that we haven't covered just for like the first time we come across these concepts and these different sciences of the Qur'an. We're going to kind of go off on a tangent and just explain them. Just so that inshallah as we're moving forward it becomes easier to understand and follow when I say to you for example you know the next one that will probably come is the difference in qira'at. Right? So when I say this verse can be recited in two different ways. What does that actually mean? And when I mention that so-and-so recited it in this way or that way, what is it that I'm actually referring to? So these different sciences of the Qur'an are important because number one, they're mentioned in the books of tafsir. It is part and parcel of the study of the science of tafsir. And number two, you know, like most of you, when I say qira'at, you just give me a blank look. So you're like, I have no idea what you're speaking about. So in order to bring some understanding, inshallah, and some depth, to those terminologies, to those concepts, to those sciences, inshallah, we'll, we'll take those tangents. So, um, last week we covered the first verse of Surah Al-Falaq, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins Surah Al-Falaq by saying, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ Say, I seek refuge in the Lord of the Daybreak. And we discussed the different views amongst the scholars of Islam concerning the word falaq, right? And we said that some of them said that it refers to Daybreak. Another said that it refers to creation in general, and the third opinion was that it refers to Jahannam. Right? It's one of the names of how fire or some component within the fire of hell, a tree or a palace or a valley or something, a house or a, or a, or a valley within the fire of hell. So Allah subhanahu wa taala begins this surah by drawing our attention to Allah's creation once again. Right? That He is the creator of the daybreak, and we said that one of the reasons why. Those scholars who took the opinion that it is the meaning of the word falaq is creation. It is more general than to specify just to daybreak is to show the power of Allah that Allah can bring the night from the day, right? And a plant from the seed and a child from the womb of its mother and so on and so forth to show the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah azza wa draws our attention to that aspect of his power his lordship, his might, because then we're going to seek refuge in Allah and seek his divine care and protection from what is mentioned within the rest of this surah. And those are a number of evils. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins in verse 2 by mentioning them in their most generic sense. And Allah says, Min shadli ma khalaq. From the evil of all that Allah has created. From the evil of all that Allah has created. And that includes all evil. It includes evil in the generic sense, and it includes evil in the specific sense. Right? What does that mean, the generic sense, the specific sense? It means the generic sense as in the concept of evil. So, thievery is an evil. Murder is an evil. Backbiting is an evil. Arrogance is an evil. Right? All of those concepts in the generic sense are evil. And then we seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from that same evil in its specific sense. Meaning, when that evil is now coupled with one who's doing the evil, with the doer. 
So from the individual that you know that wants to steal your money, wants to steal your car, wants to break into your house and steal your wealth, wants to, for example, harm you physically, wants to harm you emotionally, wants to harm you psychologically, that person who seeks to harm your family, in whichever way, shape or form, every single evil, whether in its conceptual sense, its generic sense, or whether in its specific sense, in the way that it is perpetrated by people or by groups or by states or however it's perpetrated, we seek refuge in Allah from all of that evil. And that's why the statement is generic. In the Arabic language, when something in the Arabic language is left in its generic sense, it is so that it encompasses all of the different forms and manifestations of what is being mentioned. So when you say, min sharri ma khalaq, you're asking Allah to protect you from the evil of everything that exists. Right? And that includes things that are pure evil. Right? Evil purely. Like Shaykh Al-Saymiyyan Rahimahullah, he mentions that there are three types of creations right? when it comes to good versus evil. There are creations of Allah that are only pure and good. Like Jannah, right? like the angels, like the messengers and prophets of Allah. They are only good. Right? There's no evil in them, they are purely good. And then there are creations of Allah that are purely evil, like Iblis, right? Shaitan, like the fire of hell. These are concepts, these are things that Allah has created that are pure evil, right? Within, in the essence, we mean, right? in and of themselves. And then there are creations of Allah that are a mixture of the two. They can do evil and they can do good. And that would include humans, right? us. It will include the creation of the jinn. Right? There are good from amongst them, and there are evil. Allah says in Surah Al-Jinn, there are from amongst us the righteous, and amongst us other than that, meaning not so righteous. Right? And humans likewise. We have the capacity to do good and the capacity to do evil. So when we say, min ma khalaq, we seek refuge in Allah from the evil that Allah has created. It is not just the evil of things like Jahannam, and not just the evil of things like Iblis and Shaitan, it is even amongst, or even includes the evil amongst us, or amongst those creations of Allah that have good and bad within them. That we ask Allah to protect us from the evil of what is there, and to leave the good. Right? So we're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect us from the evil. So sometimes that evil is because of an individual. Some people have more evil in them than good. Right? Some people are just, you know, they're, they're more prone to do bad. They're people who are perpetual thieves, perpetual killers, perpetual whatever they are. They are people who are more prone to do evil, to cheat, to lie, to deceive. They are more prone to do that. And then there are people who are less prone to do that, or people who will only do that when others encourage them to do it. So on, you know, by themselves, he's okay, she's okay, not a problem. But when they mix with that bad company or they mix with certain individuals, their evil becomes apparent. They're happy to be part of the group, right? part of the gang that does evil. So when you seek refuge in Allah from evil, min sharri ma khalaq, from all of the evil that Allah has created, it encompasses all of this. Right? It encompasses everything. And that is the strongest opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir, that this verse shouldn't be specified. Some of the scholars gave an example specifying it. Like Imam al-Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that it refers to, min ma khalaq, it refers to the evil 
of Jahannam, Hellfire, and of Iblis and his offspring. That's what it means. Right? We seek refuge in Allah from the evil of Jahannam, Hellfire, Iblis and his offspring. But that is an example. As we said last week, it doesn't contradict the more generic statement of other scholars of tafsir. It is an example of what is, you know, like the extreme version of evil. Right? And so he's giving, and by the way, Imam al-Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah is one of the greatest scholars of tafsir. Right? He's one of the senior scholars of the tabi'een, a student of the likes of Aisha and Abu Huraira and Ibn Abbas and many of the, of the great scholars. He was born in the Khilaf of Umar radiallahu anhu when there were only two years left in the Khilaf of Umar radiallahu And he, it is said that he you know, attended the khutbahs of Uthman radiallahu anhu. He was a young child and he would go to the masjid in Medina and he would spend time there. His father was one of the freed slaves of Zayd ibn Thabit. Radiyallahu anhu. Right? He's known as Hassan al-Basri because later on he settled in Basra, which is in Iraq, but he was born and he grew up in Medina. His father was the freed slave of Zayd ibn Thabit, radiyallahu anhu, who is, as we know, one of the greatest scholars of tafsir amongst the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And his mother used to work for, she used to do chores for, she was a servant to uh, Ummu, either Umm Salama or Umm Habiba, radiyallahu anhu, one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So as a young child, you know, some of the scholars say one of the reasons why he became such a great scholar was because he grew up in one of the households of the Prophet Sallallahu the Prophet had passed away, but he was, grew up and was raised in one of the households of one of the, the households of one of the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu And it said that the companions, when they would see him, because this was the nature of the companions, they would make dua for him, right? When you see young children, it is the sunnah that you make dua for them. Right, and to speak good to them. Right? And it's one of the, the greatest things that you can do for a child. When you come across a child, well, then like just say, oh, it's so cute, and so on. Right? And that's okay to say that they're cute, and they're nice, and they make you laugh, and so on. But also to make dua for them. And so he says that one of the reasons why Allah gave me knowledge is because the companions would see me, and they would make dua for me. And they would say things like, oh Allah, grant him knowledge. Oh Allah, bestow upon him wisdom. Oh Allah, give him knowledge of the Qur'an, or tafsir of the Qur'an. They would make these du'as. And he's a young child, but he would grow up learning and learning and learning until he became from the greatest scholars of his time. Rahimahullahu ta'ala. One of the most amazing and greatest scholars of his time, Rahimahullah. So Al-Hasan al-Basri is a name that you will be hearing very often in these lectures. And it's a name that you'll hear very often, frankly, in any uh, field of Islamic knowledge because he is one of those giants of knowledge. So he gives an example of some of the evil that Allah has created by saying Jahannam, by saying Iblis, by saying the children of the offspring of Iblis and so on. However, did he give an example or is he saying that this ayah is specific to this? No, he's saying this is what it means, right? But as we said last week, right, some, one of the ways that the scholars give tafsir is by example, right? And so when you find other scholars who say, no, it's more generic, you can say, therefore, that it's not a contradiction between the two, right? That he's giving an example, and other scholars are making it more general. So, and, and, and the reason why they make it more general, right, min shadri ma khalaq, is because the Prophet ﷺ used to seek refuge from all evil, right? And he wouldn't just limit it to one type of evil or another. But if you look throughout the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, and there are many, many ahadith and many, many du'as in which the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us to seek refuge from different types of evil and different types of dangers and different types of harms. The Prophet ﷺ used to do this, right? He would make a general dua, 
So sometimes he would make dua in its most generic form. So that the hadith that we, I think we mentioned before already in Al-Bukhari in which the Prophet ﷺ said, من نزل, he said, من نزل منزلا, whosoever descends in a place and then says, أعوذ بكلمات الله التامات من شر ما خلق. I seek refuge with the perfect words of Allah from all of the evil that he has created. Then that person will be given the protection of Allah until they leave that place. Right? So just to make that one dua, أعوذ بكلمات الله التامات من شر ما خلق. I seek the refuge of Allah with his perfect words from all the evil that he has created. Until that person leaves, Allah Azza wa will grant them their protection. So sometimes the Prophet would make that general type of protection, right? Seek Allah's refuge and protection and care from all evil, right? And in its most generic form. But then often the Prophet would also seek refuge from specific harms and specific evils, right? So for example, in the Khutbah al-Hajjah, he would say, وَنَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنْ شُرُورِ أَنفُسِنَا we seek the refuge of Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our actions. Right? And so he would sometimes specify depending on what the issue is. Well, sometimes the Prophet would specify it even more. It's reported um, in Ibn Hibban, the Sahih of Ibn Hibban, that Aisha radiallahu anha reports that the Prophet would regularly make the dua and he would say, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-ma'thami wal-maghram. Oh Allah, I seek your refuge from sinning and from debt. Right? From the capacity to sin and from taking on debt. So one of the companions remarked, and he said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, how often I hear you repeat this dua. Right? This is a dua that you make very much. Right? It's very common, very often that you make this dua. And specifically that the Prophet ﷺ would seek refuge in Allah from being impoverished, from poverty, right? And from being in debt. So the Prophet ﷺ replied and he said, and that's because when a person is in debt, they speak and they lie, they promise and they break their promise. Right? Being in debt is something which is, makes you lie. Why? Because when the person comes to seek back their wealth, right? you borrow money from someone and they come to collect their debt and you don't have the money, it's very common for people to make excuses. Right? And sometimes those excuses can involve lying. And they lie. Or sometimes they promise and they say, I'll have the money for you tomorrow, next week, next month, give me two weeks, give me three weeks, give me four weeks. And they break those promises over and over again. Right? And so the Prophet ﷺ used to seek refuge from this. And likewise, it's reported um, from Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas عن, that he used to teach his children a dua that he heard from the Prophet ﷺ and the narrator says Sa'ad would teach his children this dua the way that a teacher teaches their student how to write, write the letters of the alphabet and he said that the Prophet ﷺ used to make the dua and he used to say Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-jubn wa a'udhu bika min an arudda ila arda lil-umar wa a'udhu bika min fitnati dunya wa a'udhu bika min adhab al-qabr oh Allah I seek refuge in you from cowardice. And I seek refuge in you that I should be returned to the feebleness of old age. And I seek refuge in you from the fitna, from the trials of the dunya. And I seek refuge from you from the punishment of the grave. And when they would ask him, he would say, because this is the dua that the Prophet ﷺ taught me to, to read at the end of every prayer. 
that he taught me to make this dua, seeking refuge in Allah from cowardice, from the feebleness of old age, and from the trials of living or the trials of the dunya, and from the punishment of the grave. So the point here being that the Prophet ﷺ used to make dua and he would seek refuge from Allah from all of these evils. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as we know, is going to go into more specifics in terms of the different harms and dangers that we need to be aware of. But Allah begins in the most generic sense, right? It includes every evil. So every evil that we can think of, every evil that we can conceive, every evil that is out there that we know or that we don't know, that we're aware of or we're unaware of, we seek refuge in Allah from all of that. Right? And that's why these two surahs are called the Mu'awwidatin, right? They protect you from every single harm. And the beauty of the du'as, right? I don't know if you'll find this throughout all du'as, is that they're very generic in their scope, because as humans, it is extremely difficult for us to encompass everything. Right? So if I was to say to you right now, make du'a to Allah and list all of the dangers that you need seek, to seek protection from, it's like more or less impossible, right? Where do we even begin? How many do you write down? How many are you going to remember or recall? Because there are so many harms out there that we don't understand, that we don't know, that we're not switched on to. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives, it, gives, us, gives us this du'a in its most generic form. Min sharri ma khalaq. There is... Um, a qira'a shadha right? and there's that word again qira'a right? but we're not going to go into the whole qira'a thing just yet but there is a qira'a shadha right? the qira'at are the correct ways of reciting the Quran right? what is the correct manner of reciting the Quran so the isha prayer right? how many of you all here for isha right? when the imam was leading isha prayer tonight you may have noticed that he read in a different qira'a right so he read two common like surahs that we kind of know, well, three, Surah Fatiha, Ghashiya, and Humaza. Right? But he read them in a different way. And he read them in a way that most of us are probably not very familiar with, not accustomed to, haven't really heard before. So for example, when he was reading Surah Fatiha, you, yeah, you may have noticed, for example, that he said, Maliki Yawmiddin instead of Maliki Yawmiddin. Right? But that's an easy one. Right? He also changed the sad in Ihdina Sirat. He said Ihdina Zirat. Right? And he changed it. Most of us that are Pakistani think that's normal anyway. But that is actually not the normal way of reading that. It is supposed to be Sirat. Right? And he read it as Zirat. Instead of saying An Amta Alayhim, he said An Amta Alayhum. Right? al Maghdubi Alayhum. Right? And then he started Surah Ghashia and he said, Hal. And he paused. And then instead of saying ataka, he said ataka. Hal ataka hadithul Right? And so on and so forth. Who determines how that's recited? Right? And who chooses? It's not just something you made up. It isn't something today, okay, I'm going to do something like crazy and I'm going to read in a different way. These are principles that, there are principles that govern the way that we recite the Quran in two ways. Number one, the rules of tajweed, meaning the rules of pronunciation and the rules of tajweed in terms of what to elongate and what not to elongate, what to make broad and what to make light and all of those different what to hold and what not to hold, all of those different rulings and hakam of tajweed. And number two, in the words of the Qur'an, what makes it maliki or maliki? Right? He said, الذي 
Jama'a malan wa adada. How do you read that verse? What did he say? Alladhi jamma'a. Jama'a means to gather. Jama'a is someone who consistently, continually gathers. Jama'a is a one-off. Jama'a is someone who always gathers. Right? Who governs that? Why, why can you read this and not read that? All of that science is called the science of qira'at. Right? And this is something which, not today maybe, but next week inshallah, we'll probably go through because it's going to come uh, into play in one of the verses when we speak about verse, the verse, وَمِن شَرِّ النَّفَّاثَاتِ فِي الْعُقَدِ There is it's the first time in the Qur'an, in, you know, in our, like, because we're going from the back, uh, it's the first time that we will see a difference in qira'ah. Right, a difference in the Qira'ah. And so that's something which we, inshallah, we're going to speak about anyway. Shana, you know in different countries, they, I mean, uh, not, not like Pakistan in the indo pakistan but in African, certain African countries, yeah. there's a different dialect, like a dialect when they recite the Qur'an. Yeah. Is there a limit to where it's acceptable? Because it wouldn't be a different Qira'ah, it may be just, or maybe it is, I, I don't know, I've heard. No, so, okay, so when it comes, okay, so the question is like in certain places, certain places in Africa and so on, people have different dialects when they read in the Quran. We have to kind of like differentiate, and I didn't want to go through the whole debate right now. But anyway, the, we have to differentiate between a couple of things, right? Number one, the first thing is we have to understand the difference between what is Tajweed and what is just people's, like, you know, own either dialects or lack of dialect, right? If they're non Arabs. Right? So for example, you know, if you're from an Indo-Pak background, you're going to read the Quran, especially if you have been taught like you know with the teacher who studies to read, you're going to read the Quran in a certain way. Right? Our parents all all read Quran in a certain way. Through no fault of their own, it's just the way that they were taught and the way that they're brought up. And because the letters of the Urdu alphabet are very similar to the Arabic alphabet, there is a lot of overlap, so the way that you read Urdu or speak Urdu or pronounce Urdu words is going to be very similar to Arabic words. So that's one issue, right? That's not qira'at. That's just people's own dialects and their issues and so on. By the way, one of the reasons why Uthman radiallahu an compiled the Qur'an and sent the Qur'an and you have all of these different rulings of qira'at and so on is because of the number of non-Arabs that entered into the fold of Islam across the Muslim world, what is today the Muslim world, and because those people were not Quraysh, from Quraysh, were not people who understood Arabic, were not people who were well-versed in Arabic, the Arabs and the companions and the scholars of that time had to, by necessity, write things in a way that would be understood by all. And that's why Umar sent Abu Darda to Sham, right? and Ibn Mas'ud to Iraq, and Mu'adh to Palestine. And all of these different companions who were known to be scholars of Qur'an, he sent them to different parts of the Muslim world, so that they could teach people how to read the Qur'an and recite the Qur'an. In those days, when they would write the Qur'an, write the Uthmani script, what we call the Uthmani script, and even before Uthman compiled the Qur'an, Arabic, back in the day, 1400 years ago, didn't have dots, and it didn't have vowels. So a ba wouldn't have a dot underneath, and a ta wouldn't have two dots on top of it. Right? And the reason why they didn't is because those Arabs didn't need them. They would know simply by seeing the shape of the word that it only makes sense if it's written in one way. Only one word makes sense in that context. And they didn't need dots. That came like a hundred so years later. That they had to stop putting dots in because you know people like me and you didn't have a clue what's the difference between a ba and a ta and a tha. If you don't tell us the dots, we don't know. 
Right? And then afterwards, even the dots weren't enough. They had to put in the fatha and the dhamma and the kasra, right? You know what we call the, what's it called? Zabar zerpesh, right? That we all learned when we were young children. Right? They had to do that. Why? Because is that a babi ubu? Is that a ta ti tu? I don't know. Right? And that's why the Arabic of the Quran is different to the Arabic that we write today. Arabs all over the world, when they're writing common day Arabic, it is different to the way that the Arabic is written on the Quran. Maliki in the Quran isn't written mean alif lam kaf. It's one word, mean lam kaf. And then they put that little alif on top to show you actually it says maliki, not maliki. Right? They didn't have that back in the day. So that brings me on to the point that I wanted to mention. Which is, and so therefore to answer your question, in Africa, like there are people who read, for example, Duri and other Qira'at, Qalun, right? The Imam sometimes here, he reads in Qalun, right? Um, so they, they have like different recitations, and there is a whole history, right? Of how these Qira'at spread and so on. Suffice to say now that the vast majority of the world recite in Hafs, right? If you go to Saudi Arabia, if you go to Pakistan, if you go to Indonesia, Malaysia, the UK, the vast majority of the world and the Muslim world recite in Hafs. And and inshallah we'll we'll go into that maybe next week in a bit more detail. But there are certain countries like Morocco where they read Warsh, places like Sudan read Duri, places like uh, Libya read Qalun. And that's not because historically these are the qiraat of those lands. It's just over time they've kind of shift, like the, the fiqh madhabs, right? The fiqh madhabs, you know, in, in Medina, it was all Maliki, right? Imam Malik is from Medina. But today in Saudi Arabia, what are they? The Hanbalis, right? And Hanafis were in Iraq, right? And, you know, Shafi'is in Egypt. And, so, and now it's like kind of changed and they've developed and so on and spread out and what have you. So what makes a qira'ah authentic? How do we know this is the way that the qira'ah is and that it's an authentic, acceptable recitation of the Qur'an? Three conditions. Number one is that it has to be mutawatir. Its chain of narration from us to the Prophet ﷺ has to be mutawatir. Mutawatir means that at every level of the chain of narration, there are so many narrators, so many people narrating the same thing that it is impossible for them to lie. It's impossible for there to be a conspiracy. If there's only me and this brother, right? Ameen, right? Me and Ameen. We're the only brothers at the first level. I can say to Amin, you know what? Actually, we're going to change the wording. And it's like, okay. And we agree. That's not mutawatir. Because two people can easily collude and lie. Three people can lie. Four. And there's a difference of opinion on what is the, the minimum level of mutawatir. But the point here being is that these qira'at are so mutawatir that it would be impossible for them to have life. Every single stage, every single level of that chain of narration, there are countless people, so many people, that it's impossible for them all to have met up and lied, and not to, not to have done so at every single stage of that chain. So okay, maybe even if for the sake of argument, you know, one generation does it. But to do that at every single generation, every single level, and then all of them to agree on that lie, so that there's not even one difference, right? That's like something which is beyond human capability, because humans are not so good at that stuff, right? When it goes into big numbers. That's the first condition. The second condition is that it has to be Arabic. has to conform to the rules of Arabic grammar. It has to be conforming to the rules of Arabic grammar. And the third condition 
is that it has to conform to the Uthmani script. The Uthmani script. So the differences today that you'll find in Qira'at, when he says alayhim or alayhum, we think he's made a mistake. Why has he changed the kasra to a dhamma? But you have to remember that when the Qur'an was written, what did we say? There was no such thing as, as, as kasra, fatha, dhamma. So you could read them both in both ways, and both of them are Arabic, like grammatically correct. Alayhum, alayhim. Both of them are grammatically correct in the Arabic language. Right? Maliki, maliki. There's no alif in the Uthmani script. It is written as meem, lam, kaf. You can read that as maliki or maliki. Right? And this is what you have to kind of remember when you see those differences. So that's the third condition. Has to conform to the Uthmani script. The way that Uthman and the companions agreed unanimously that this is the Quran, that's the, the, the writing that it has to conform to. So if someone comes and changes that script to add something, you already know automatically what that it is. Not a qira'a mutawatir. We come to another level, and that is called qira'a shadha. Qira'a shadha means that it's a recitation that doesn't conform to one of those or more of those three principles. And you will find this. You'll find in the books of tafsir that Ibn Abbas read something in a certain way. Ibn Mas'ud read something in a certain way. So and so Hassan Basri would read something in a certain way. And they are called qira'at shadha. We don't read in them, and we don't recite them, but they are still preserved. Why? Because the scholars say they are tafsir. They are what? Tafsir. Right? This is the companion's understanding of that verse, and they would add a word to it to show the understanding of the, the verse of the Qur'an. Right? It's not accepted as qira'ah because the majority of the companions didn't read it like that. So we know that's something peculiar to this companion. But at the same time, we use it in tafsir. Not as Qur'an, because there is not Qur'an, but we take it as tafsir. Just as we take all of the other opinions and views of tafsir. So do we say this is the ishtihad of the Sahabi, or do we say there's a possibility this could have been the qira'ah because by the qadr of Allah it wasn't preserved? No, we say that it's the ishtihad of the companion. Because what is, what is the Qur'an is preserved. Allah tells us it's preserved in the Qur'an. So therefore, what is the Qur'an has to be preserved by the actual words of the Qur'an. Right? So these are the individual, like, um, you know, ishtihadat of the companions. The reason why I mention this is that then you have a, um, a third level, which isn't even shad. It is just a rejected qira'ah. Right? It's just something which someone has brought in that doesn't even, you know, like the others will maybe conform to one of those three or two of those three or it's a major companion so even if you don't accept it as a qira'ah we know that it's probably something which he heard the Prophet ﷺ say and so he just kept it on because he wanted to bring that understanding of the verse or whatever there is a qira'ah that isn't even in that category it is rejected and the reason why I mention this is because one of those qira'at that are completely rejected is in this verse min sharri ma khalq it is read by, or is read by, as um, Abu Hayyan mentions in his tafsir, by one of the leaders of the Mu'tazila. And the Mu'tazila is one of the uh, groups that appeared towards the beginning of Islam in the latter part of the Umayyad dynasty, and then it flourished in the Abbasid times. And they had a number of beliefs from them, is that they rejected many of the uh, attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, many of the names and attributes of Allah azza wa jal, and other things. Right? And, and they said, for example, that Allah cannot create anything evil. Allah does not create evil. And because of that, 
one of their leaders, a man by the name of Amr ibn Ubaid, he would read this verse, because what do we say in this verse? Min shadri ma khalaq. We seek Allah's protection from what? From the evil of all that he has created. Who has created? Allah. He would say, Min sharrin ma khalaq. Not min sharri, min sharrin ma khalaq. What's the difference in, in meaning? From all evil, he did not create. He did not create. Ma, ma khalaq. Ma in the Arabic language can mean all that which, or it can mean no, to negate. Right? It's called in Arabic ma nafia, to negate something. So he said, min sharrin, we seek refuge in the Lord of the daybreak from evil. Ma khalaq. But he didn't create it. Meaning that Allah didn't create it. And obviously this goes against the aqidah of sunnah because everything that is in existence besides Allah is by definition a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because otherwise it would have a power within itself and there must be a creator for that. If Allah is not the creator, then who is the creator? And so on and so forth. But they, because they have this view that Allah cannot create evil or does not create evil, therefore they fall into this, you know, this difficulty. And so they change the verse of the Qur'an. Right? And this is obviously something which is rejected and it's not even a qira'a shada, it is just a rejected um, qira'a. Right? And the reason why they did that is because of the, um, you know, the difficulty of understanding this verse. Right? Because Allah is saying, we seek refuge in Allah, the Lord of the daybreak, from the evil that He created. Right? And as we know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that Allah Azza wa Jal created everything in this universe. And Allah says in the Quran, وَنَبْلُوكُمْ بِالشَّرِّ وَالْخَيْرِ fitna." We test you with good and with evil. Allah Azza wa Jal says in the Quran, another verse of the Quran say that Allah Azza wa نَبْلُوَنَّكُمْ بِالشَّيْءٍ مِّنَ الْخَوْفِ وَالْجُوعِ وَنَقْصٍ مِّنَ الْأَمْوَالِ وَالْأَنفُسِ وَالثَّمَرَاتِ We will test you with fear and with hunger and with the loss of provision, and with the loss of life, and so on. And glad tidings be to those who are patient. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created everything in this universe. However, even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created everything in this universe, it is not from adab or from etiquette to say that it belongs to Allah. So we seek refuge in Allah from everything that Allah has created to affirm Allah's power. But Allah has power over it. Because Allah Azza wa Jal gives us protection from the evil of those creations because Allah is their creator. But also it is not from the adab of a Muslim that we ascribe evil to Allah. Because the Prophet ﷺ would say, as is in the hadith in Sahih Muslim, He would say, Oh Allah, all good comes from you and belongs to you, and evil is not ascribed to you. Right? And that doesn't mean that we don't believe that Allah create, didn't create the evil. Allah created it. But just as a point of etiquette, it is not befitting that we ascribe that evil to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's something which you will find often in the Qur'an. Right? So for example, in, um, in the story of Ibrahim alayhi salam, when he's speaking about Allah's blessings and Allah's favors upon him, and he says, He's the one who created me and he guided me. وَالَّذِي هُوَ يُطْعِمُنِي وَيَسْقِينَ And he's the one who feeds me 
and he quenches my thirst. وَإِذَا مَرِضْتُ فَهُوَ يَشْفِينَ But when I become ill, then he cures me. And he doesn't ascribe the illness to Allah. Everything else is from Allah. Allah created me, Allah guided me, Allah feeds me, Allah cures me. But when it comes to illness, because of the you know, bad connotations of illness and the weak and the evil connotations, he says, وَإِذَا مَرِضْتُ When I become ill. Right? And that's from the adab that he has with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <coughs> and likewise, you'll find something similar at the end of Surah Yusuf, uh, when Yusuf السلام, is being reunited with his family and his brothers and so on. And then he ascribes the evil that took place or the problems that took place between him and his brothers, he ascribes it to shaitan. Right? And he ascribes him entering into prison. Yusuf السلام, he ascribes his own entering into prison to shaitan. But then when it comes to leaving prison, he says that it is from the favors of Allah. And obviously Allah decreed it all. Allah knew it all. It's all within the knowledge of Allah. But as a point of etiquette, it's not mentioned as coming from Allah. Right? So there's a difference between these two things. Right? And you'll find the same thing, for example, in, um, in uh, Surah Al-Kahf, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the story of Musa and Khidr alayhim salam, when... Um, when Yusuf, uh, when Musa السلام, is seeking explanation from Khidr السلام, and at the end Khidr السلام, is telling him why he did the things that he did right? and when he comes to for example the children and you know like the, or the orphans rather and them finding the treasure he says that it's from the favors of Allah right? that, that Allah wanted because of the righteousness of their father the piety of their father he wanted them to take from that treasure and benefit from it right? but when it comes to scuttling the ship Right? Breaking up the ship, letting water seep into the ship. He says, I was the one who scuttled the ship. Even despite the command of Allah, because at the end, what does he say? I didn't do any of this by my own accord. <coughs> Meaning everything was commanded to me by Allah. But out of etiquette, he doesn't ascribe that to Allah, because obviously scuttling the ship isn't something which generally would be considered to be praiseworthy. Right? And that brings us to another issue which is also very important. And that is that when Allah brings evil or creates evil or has evil in this universe, it is because even though there is evil within it, there is also good. Right? Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah mentions that when Allah ascribes something or decrees or, or creates something in which there is evil, it may be evil in its essence, but there is goodness in the wisdom of creating. So for example, Jahannam is evil. Iblis is evil. But there is wisdom in the creation of that evil. Because through Iblis, we have that test. Through Iblis, when we ward off Iblis, we increase in reward. We increase in stations in the hereafter. Right? Through uh, Iblis and his, and his, and his different uh, temptations and so on, the prophets of Allah increase in rank and they become better and they become greater. And their stories are mentioned in the Quran and so on and so forth. Right? So even though it may be evil within its essence that Allah has created and allowed to exist, there are many benefits and wisdoms that come as a result of it. And uh, Ibn Qayyim has a whole book that he dedicates to this topic. Right? Um, and so it's something which, therefore, understanding this issue is very important. Right? So, and that's why some of the scholars of Tafsir, when they say, Min ma when you seek refuge in Allah, and we say from the evil of all that Allah has created, right? we said that it's conceptual evil, but also individualistic evil. But then when you're seeking 
refuge in Allah and Allah's protection from the individual evil, it's that you're asking Allah to remove that evil. And if there is good in that, that it may approach you as well. Because sometimes things that are evil have some good in them as well. Right? Even Shaytan in the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu an in Ramadan in Sahih Bukhari, so Ramadan and the Prophet has asked him to go and spend the nights guarding the wealth of Sadaqah, right? the charity that people have given, to guard it and make sure that no one steals from it. So for three nights running, a man who looks very shabby, very poor, very destitute, he tries to steal from that wealth. And each time Abu Hurairah caught him, and because the man pleaded poverty and family and you know extenuating circumstances, he lets him off and tells him to go. But he says, don't ever come back and do it again. Three nights in a row, he does that. And on the third night, he does the same thing. And Abu Hurairah catches him. And he says, no more excuses. Tomorrow, I will take you to the Prophet He said, let me leave. And if you do so, I will tell you something that you don't know. Something that is extremely precious. He said what? He said, if you recite Ayat al-Kursi, then you will be protected from every harm. Or something to the effects of that wording. So he let him go. And then the, the next day he came to the Prophet and he informed him. Right? And each morning the Prophet would say to Abu Hurairah what happened last night? What did that man do to you? As if he knew. And Abu Hurairah would say to him this is what he did. And he made a promise that he won't come back. And the Prophet would say he'll return. So on the fourth day after the three nights passed on the fourth morning the Prophet says what did he do last night? So he tells him, O Messenger of Allah, I caught him, I was going to bring him to you. But then he told me this instead. The Prophet ﷺ said, do you know who that was, Abu Hurairah? That was Shaytan. And what he told you, Sadaqa wa huwa He spoke the truth, even though he is a perpetual liar. It is his nature to lie. But at this moment, he spoke the truth. Right? Which shows you that, you know, I mean, there's many benefits in this hadith. From those benefits is that we take the truth, whatever it comes from. Right? The Prophet didn't say, oh, it's shaitan, so therefore, you know, it can't be true. When he spoke the truth, it's the truth. Right? And the Prophet confirmed that it's true. But also from this is that you show that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has many wisdoms in the creation of evil or in the creation of, um, of things that we consider to be evil. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, min sharri uh, ma from the evil of all that Allah Azza wa has created. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala carries on in verse number 3 and he says, وَمِن شَرِّ غَاسِقٍ إِذَا And from the evil of ghasiq, right, which I think in most books of tafsir is referred to as night, إِذَا وَقَبْ When it darkens, right, when it enters or when it darkens. The word ghasiq here is um, mentioned by some of the scholars as meaning uh, that there are like a couple of um, or two main opinions when it comes to this word ghasiq. The first of them is that it means the night. Right? And this is you know, the one that's probably more well known. Um, it's uh, something which is mentioned by Ibn Abbas radiallahu an, uh, Muhammad ibn Ka'ab, al-Dahat, al-Hassan al-Basri, Qatada, Mujahid, many of the scholars of tafsir that the word ghasiq refers to the night. Right? And the other opinion uh, that some of the scholars had is that it refers to um, the moon. Right? It refers to the moon. And uh, this is something which is mentioned also by 
uh, Imam al-Tabri rahimahullah, but we'll come on to this in a short while. So the word ghasiq in this verse, Allah Azza wa says, وَمِن شَرِّ غَاسِقٍ And the word ghasiq again is referred to as being very generic. Right? Doesn't specify it in any form. It is a generic word. وَمِن شَرِّ غَاسِقٍ And the scholars say the reason for that is because it refers to everything evil that the night contains. Right? So many scholars of tafsir, they point to the fact that the night, and this is, this is something which we all know, the night is more likely to be a time of evil, of crime, of harm, of danger, than daylight hours. Right? So Allah Azza wa Jal is going from, in verse number two, very general harm, min sharri ma khalaq, and now he begins to specify. So the first, the first, if you like, specification, or the first, you know, like, um, narrowing down of evil and of danger, is the night. وَمِن شَرِّ غَاسِقٍ إِذَا وَقَبْ And Imam Al-Zuhri rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that the word waqab refers to the sun setting. Waqab is sun setting. عَنْ عَطِيَّةِ and Qatada rahimahullah, they said when the night, uh, or if you like, when the night enters, right? when the night becomes strong, meaning after Isha time. And it's reported that Abu Hurairah said that the word waqab means when you can see the stars, meaning when the night has set in. And um, Allah Azza wa Jalla in the Quran, and they, and they use as a proof for this the other verse of the Quran in Surah Al Isra, which Allah Azza wa Jalla says, Aqim al salata liduluk al shamsi ila ghasaq al layl. And the word ghasaq and ghasaq come from the same root word. Aqim al-Salah, establish the prayer, liduluk al-Shams, from when the sun passes its zenith time, meaning dhuhr, onwards, ila ghasaq al-Layl, until the night enters. Right? And some of the scholars said that refers to Maghrib, because that's when the night enters. Another said it refers to Maghrib and Isha, because the word ghasaq means not just the night entering, but it means when it becomes darkened. Right? And that's um, you know, one of the, the most common tafsirs that you have. Of the word, right? when the night becomes dark, meaning not just Maghrib time, not just when you know there's still redness in the sky, but after Isha when the night really sets in. And this was the opinion of Ibn Abbas, that he said that the word waqab means adlam, when it becomes dark. Right? That's the word. And al dahaq said it means when it enters, Qatada said it means when it leaves or when it's ending. And Yaman said that it means when it has settled. And basically what they're referring to, therefore, when you bring all of these different words together, all of these different tafasir and opinions together, is that they're referring to all of the night. Right? The whole night. Because some of them made tafsir with the beginning of the night, which is Maghrib time. Others, halfway uh, during the night when it's starting to like settle, or when it's settled and it's darkened. And others towards the end, right? when it's elapsing, when the night is finishing. So when we say women from the evil of everything which comes out at night, right? the evil of everything that the night brings, whether at the beginning or in the middle or at the end. Right? And that's why many of the scholars of Tafsir they say that this is the time when you have all of the evil coming out. Right? You have the evil that comes out, whether it's people, whether it's jinn, whether it's other harmful things, right? this is the time when all of the evil comes out. And um, one of the linguists of the Arabic language, as a judge, he said 
that the word ghasiq refers to when the night becomes cold. Right? So when it becomes cold, meaning when it's settled, right? in the depths of the night, that's what it's referring to. The other opinion of the word ghasiq, as we said, is that it refers to the moon. Right? The moon, that the word ghasiq refers to the moon. And this is mentioned by Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah in his tafsir. And he said that the reason for this is because of the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, in, which is collected in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam one day or one night took her by the hand and he showed her the moon. Right? And he said to her, Seek the refuge of Allah of this ghasiq when it comes. Right? And he pointed to the moon. So those scholars said, therefore, that's the meaning of ghasiq. However, the scholars say that both of them refer to the same thing because the moon is often used in the Arabic language as a sign of the night. Right? And that's why Allah Azza wa Jal says in Surah Al-Fussilat, وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ اللَّيْلُ وَالنَّهَارُ وَالشَّمْسُ وَالْقَمَرُ From the signs of Allah are the day and the night, the sun and the moon. And then he says, لَا تَسْجُدُوا لِلشَّمْسِ وَلَا لِلْقَمَرُ Don't make sajda to the moon or the sun. Right? Because the day and the sun often refer to one another, and the night and the moon refer to one another. Seek refuge in Allah from this ghasiq idha waqab, right, when it settles. Right? And so those scholars said, therefore, it refers to the moon. But the vast majority of the scholars with tafsir held the first opinion. And that is that it refers to the night. And even those scholars who said that it refers to all the scholars who mentioned both opinions, they said that this is how we reconcile between the two, that the moon is a sign of the night. And so every evil that comes out at night, wherever it may be, and we know that the night brings evil. Right? It's a time when it's more likely to, to have evil. In the hadith in Al-Bukhari, the Prophet ﷺ told us that when the night settles or when the sun sets at Maghrib time, then keep your children at home. Meaning don't let them out. Until the night settles in. Meaning as soon as Maghrib comes in, keep them at home until the twilight leaves, until, until the, the redness of the sky leaves and the night settles, and then you can allow them to go. Why? Because this is the time when the devils disperse. This is the time of the spreading of the devils. So if a portion of the night elapses, then you can allow them to leave. And close or lock your doors and mention the name of Allah, meaning at night before you sleep, Lock your doors and mention the name of Allah. And turn off your lights and mention the name of Allah. And cover your vessels and mention the name of Allah and you will not be harmed. Right? And that's because the Prophet ﷺ is telling us to what? Protect ourselves and to ready ourselves, to defend ourselves against the evils of the night. And that's why Imam Marazi in his tafsir and others, they say that the night is something which is well known to bring evil. Right? It brings evil of the jinn brings the evil out of humans. Humans are more likely to commit crime during the night than they are during the day and all of those issues that we have. And so therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifies the evil that we have in general. He specifies it at the time of the night in which it is more likely to occur. And that is min sharri ghasiqin idha waqab from the evil of the night when it settles or when it deepens or when it darkens. And Allah azza wa knows best. And I think inshallah we'll, we'll, uh, we'll stop there. Yeah, questions, yeah. So, uh, you know, you're talking about um, close the doors and sleep with Allah. Is that when it's night time or Isha time or is it when the Maghrib comes in when you should do that? 
No, that's before you go to sleep. Yeah. So when you go to sleep, it is the sunnah that you obviously lock your doors, cover your vessels and everything else before you go to sleep and you mention Allah's name over it. And likewise with them, telling children not to go outside because of the shirking. Yeah, so that, the hadith is specific to the Maghrib time. So about a time in the Maghrib, you bring them in. And then after like, you know, after a portion of the night lapses, you know, maybe after half an hour after Maghrib goes, the time of Maghrib finishes, then you let them out. If they want to go out, right? Which I know is quite difficult now because of, um, you know, like Maghrib is so early, and most of them are probably coming back from school, if anything, right? They're already out. So, therefore, like what I would always recommend is that you make the du'as over them, teach them those du'as. So even if they're outside and it's Maghrib time, they can still make their du'as, read Ayatul Kursi, the Falaq al-Nas, Ikhlas, Fatiha, and those evening adhkar. And that's something which they can use to protect themselves, right? So it's not haram to go out, it's not haram for them to be out, right? But the meaning of the hadith is that it's a time which, you know, it's not, it's not recommended that you go out without any necessary cause. But if you're out, you make your adhkar, and that's fine. Do you know if the Muslim of Uthman corresponds to one of the Ahruf, or is it... A combination of all okay, of so does the Mus'haf of Uthman an correspond to one of the Ahruf? Right? And this is a very technical issue now, and it's like opens up a whole different science, right? What are the Ahruf as Sab'a, right? The seven Ahruf. What do they refer to, and do they still exist or not exist? This is an issue of um, you know, great debate amongst scholars, right? So there is no doubt that the Prophet used to read the Quran in more than one way, right? Um, so, and that's the hadith of Umar when he heard one of the companions reading the Quran in a way that he wasn't familiar so he became angry and upset and he took him by the hand and he said oh messenger of Allah I heard him reading a Quran in a way that I have never read it's foreign to me so the Prophet said to Umar Umar read to me so Umar read and he said to the second companion read to me and he read and then the Prophet said the Quran was revealed to me this way and it was revealed to me that way and then he said that the Qur'an was revealed in seven ahruf. What do the ahruf refer to? There is a difference of opinion amongst the scholars. Some of them said that it refers to the qira'at. And others said that it doesn't refer to the qira'at, but it refers to seven types of eloquence that you find in the Arabic language. Like for example, taqdim and ta'khir. Things go forward and back. Right? Things are advanced or delayed in the Qur'an. So for example, uh, when Allah Azza wa says in the Qur'an, uh, in the other wording it is Switches over right? So they say some things go forward Some things go back right? Or for example some things are mentioned in the singular And some things are mentioned in the plural right? And the script is the same But you just add like You can make words into the plural or into the singular They said that that's what the Ahruf referred to so therefore, you know, and then that from that discussion, depending on the opinion that you choose, or the opinion that that scholar chose, it will go to the second issue of do the ahruf still exist today, or did the Musaf Uthman effectively bring them into one ahruf, right, one harf? Right? And the ahruf referred to the dialects that were prevalent amongst the Arabs at that time of the Prophet wasallam, the major Arab tribes. Right? But when Uthman radiallahu anhu, as we know, when he gathered everyone on a single Musaf, what did he say to Zaid? When you find people differing. Which language should you go back to? Quraysh. Go back to the language of Quraysh. Because the Prophet was from us and the Quran was revealed to us. Right? And so those scholars say, therefore, those other ahruf 
were not existent. Other scholars say, no, they still exist because the meaning isn't a dialect in that sense. It refers to these other issues of plural and singular and so on. So therefore, they exist in the form of the qiraat, and that's why you have, for example, jama'a and jamma'a and all of these like different variations that you have. And Allah Azza knows best. It is something which the scholars have heavily differed over and debated over the ages. Sorry, say that again. Okay, so um, the question is, uh, sister was under the impression that young children can't be affected by the evil eye. The evil eye is something which you know we'll discuss in slightly more detail in the final verse uh, of Surah Falak. Um, but in, in essence, no, it is something which children can be affected by. Children can be affected by the evil eye, um, and it's. Um, uh, it's mentioned, for example, that Uthman radiallahu an, during his time, there was a child who was extremely handsome, and he said to the to its mother, you know, don't like uh, parade him, don't parade him around, because I fear that someone may afflict him with the evil eye because he is so handsome, right? Showing that the companions understood that this is a concept that can affect children, and that's why the Prophet ﷺ used to make dua over his two grandsons, Al Hassan and Hussein. And he used to say, I seek refuge in Allah and protection for you with his perfect words from every shaitan, devil, and every vermin, and from every evil eye. And he would mention that by word, because it is something which can affect everyone, and Allah knows best. I was going to say any questions online, but we're not online, no. So... That's good. Yeah. You know the good that can come up from uh, evil. Is that something that um, like humans can comprehend, or is it left to the wisdom of Allah? Yeah. So humans can comprehend uh, the evil that comes, or the good that comes out of evil, because the Prophet ﷺ told us that there is nothing except good for the believer. So when goodness comes to a believer, he is grateful, and that is better for him. And when evil comes to the believer, they are patient, and that is still better for them. So we can't comprehend in the sense that we don't know the future and what it holds and the benefits and all of its wisdoms because sometimes you're afflicted by evil and you don't know. Right? But as the scholars used to say, how many people have been afflicted by evil and it has made them better? And how many people were afflicted by goodness and it made them worse? Right? So you don't know. You don't have that capacity to understand. But the important thing is, is that you have that strong iman, that trust in Allah, that patience with the decree of Allah. And then even in things that seem evil, right? Allah Azza wa makes... Um, makes them good and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this in the Quran that perhaps you think that something is bad for you but it's better for you or you think that something is good for you and it is more evil for you in this ayah we, we said that um, it refers to darkness does that, give no, does that not give more strength to the first ayah referring to daybreak if we're saying this refers to night time yeah so some of the scholars made that uh, connection or that contemplation rather that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, um, you know, it's like an imagery, right? That Allah azza wa is using. The daybreak is of light and the night is of dark, right? That Allah azza wa is showing that even in the depths of that darkness and the evil, the one who has the power to bring light is the one that you should seek protection in and, and, and seek Allah azza wa divine care for. Okay, inshallah, inshallah, next week, bidnillah, we will start at 7.30. <laughs> inshallah. Inshallah. <laughs>